Grab your Bibles. We're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 17. The same text we looked at last week. I also want you to, to mark Romans 13. So we're going to look at Romans 13 this morning as well. Matthew 17, verses 22 through 27. And then for the sake of time, I want you to your finger over there, Romans 13, we'll look at verses 1 through 7 in Romans. And let's go ahead and pray before we open and read God's Word this morning. Our Father, we do pray that you would take your eternal truths and write them on our hearts today, that you would give us a picture of you and what it is that you desire from us. I pray that your word would not fall on deaf ears or on cold hearts, but that we would be stirred to know how to think upon you and the things of this world and our own Christian lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 27, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? from their sons or from others. And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And then over to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, that Matthew 13 passage, I would point you to last week's sermon for the exposition of that passage. And 
If we had had the time last week, if I had a whole hour to preach, then everything that is said this morning probably would have been fleshed out last week in that sermon. And so I want you to consider these as kind of two parts of, of one sermon, if you will. But I told you last week that we would stop and explore the reason for government and our relation as Christians to government because it came up there in the text and Matthew chapter 13, and so we'll look at that this morning. I would also, though, point you to uh, the beginning of the year. It feels like ages ago when we did our um, faith focus for the year, and we were looking at our identity in Christ. One of those sermons was on identity and politics, our identity in Christ and politics. So we'd point you back there as well for an exposition, uh, looking at a text and exploring that together. I'm not doing an exposition per se this morning. I I don't normally preach topically, uh, but I want to address government as it arose in the text and try to bring our Christian theology and principles to bear upon a subject that we are all thinking about today. I don't think it matters where you are at on the political spectrum in the United States. Uh, You are thinking about government. You're thinking about what a government should be, and you're thinking about what our relationship to the government should be as a Christian. When do we stand with it? When do we stand against it? And so I want to explore that a little bit this morning and this afternoon here with you. As we saw last week, Jesus there in Matthew chapter 17, He acknowledges, or 13, 17, He acknowledges the right Uh, for the tax to be collected there for the temple, this government-sanctioned tax that the Roman government had instituted, and he gives to that tax. And so he recognizes these governmental authorities. We also saw last week, though, that he had a right not to pay this tax, and though he does pay it there, a few chapters later he will walk into the temple there in Jerusalem, what that tax went to, and he will put together a cord, and he will make it into a whip, and he will drive the money changers out of that temple, and if you will, we could call that, a, in part at least, an act of civil disobedience on the part of Jesus. And we spoke about last week that as we're considering these things, what matters is wisdom. There is wisdom that needs to be brought to bear as we think upon these things together, especially when we consider government. And so I want to approach that this morning from that framework. When we speak about government, I want to speak about it in four ways this morning. The points will be quick. I cannot and I will not be able to answer all of your questions or all the needs of the moment. I also will say more than some of you would like on one point or another and say less than some of you would like on one point or another, and I recognize that, Uh, but I ask you to to be gracious in listening to me. I pray that you would be so as we try and explore this together. I also want to be clear from the outset that I've relied on a lot of different people uh, more than I normally would as thought through this subject. Uh, David Ennis' book, Christ in the Kingdom of Men, provides a lot of fuel for this sermon. I've also grabbed different things from David Van Drunen, D.A. Carson, Norm Geisler, Herman Bovink, Samuel Rutherford, uh, Wayne Grudem, Abraham Kuyper, among others. I'm not going to cite them all as we go through 
the sermon today. That would take too much time, but you can uh, guess that I am borrowing things from different people. Though I don't find that I completely agree with any of them on their view of government. There are different things that I find helpful from each. But I want to look at them and look at government this morning in four ways. First, perspective. Second, purpose. Third, problem. And fourth, practice. So, perspective, purpose, problem, practice. First, perspective. As you and I think about government, I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to take a step back from thinking about secular government. Because in many ways, I think as we think about government, we think about it too small. We consider it too little. Romans 13 is clear. God establishes governments. And our view of it, therefore, is often too small. Paul says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus will echo this same sentiment in John 19 as He stands before Pilate, who is questioning Him and is about ready to condemn Him. And Jesus will say to Pilate, You would have no authority over Me at all unless it had been given to you from above. It was saying that Him, this is my Father's world, and that's exactly right. The writer of Genesis, Moses, will go to great pains at the very beginning of Genesis to say that in the beginning was God. That is, there was nothing else. And then in the space of six days, out of nothing, by the word of His power, God creates heaven and earth. And so all the universe is His. All the earth is His. It all belongs to Him. And that means that He alone has all authority and He alone has all power. This is what Jesus is getting at when He speaks to Pontius Pilate. And He says to him, you would have no authority at all unless it was given to you from above. That is, every authority in this world, every governing authority has what we would call derived power and authority. It's derived from God. And it is derived. They would not rule unless God appointed them to rule. And thus Jesus can recognize the right of the governing authorities to exact a tax, though he might disagree with how it's being used. Our government, our view of government, is often too small. There, there is a government behind the government. It is God. Who establishes it. Our second point, its purpose. I'm also afraid that our, our view of government is not just too small, it's often too big. It is not meant to do all things. It has a very particular sphere that God has given to it. And it is not the sphere of the church, and it's not the sphere of the family, and it's not the sphere of the individual. It is a very particular sphere that the government, secular government, is to stay within and is to maintain. And so, government is not to do all things. It's not to operate outside its sphere. 
So I want to give you four purposes this morning for government. The first comes from the light of nature. Government exists for the purpose of the cooperation of people with one another for mutual benefit. That is, that there are things that you and I, we need to bind together to do so that we can cooperate together to do something that is bigger than we could do individually or as a family unit by ourselves. And that is evident by the light of nature. The second reason is that government exists to restrain and punish evil, Romans 13. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is, God has given the sword of justice to be yielded by the state. And it is to wield that sword of justice to bring punishment upon those that are participating or fomenting evil. Third, government exists to reward and encourage good. Paul writes in Romans 13, then do what is good and you will receive his approval. Meaning that government doesn't just simply exist to halt negative behavior, but government exists to encourage positive behavior. Especially what we might call the second table of the law, the Ten Commandments. That second table, what John quoted this morning before he led us into that confession of sin. That what can be summarized in the fact that we are to love our neighbor. Psalm 82, verses 2-4, through four, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so this means that as Christians, as we consider government, even believing in a limited government, would argue that every Christian has to have a view of limited government to some degree because we understand it just has this sphere. But even holding to a view of limited government... We believe that government in its limitedness is to encourage flourishing among all its people. All its people. This means that at the very least, it it is to make it difficult for those who would seek to take life and liberty from the defenseless. And this is what made the Jim Crow laws so horrific. This is what makes abortion laws in this country so utterly disgusting. Is that the government, by its law, is actually upholding the right of might and not defending the weak from the wicked, as the psalmist says. Fourth, government exists to maintain an environment conducive to free worship. This is in part why Jesus responds the way He does when He goes into the temple. And He puts together that, those cords and makes a whip and drives out the money changers because they were inhibiting worship occurring there in the temple. We're not saying that government should promote religion, but it should provide and it should protect the conditions necessary for the practice of free religion. 
So Paul will say in Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why them? He says this, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is, so we might worship and then practice our faith as we are led to practice it in the world in which we live. Four reasons that government exists under God. Our third point, though, is the problem. So when is it allowable to practice civil disobedience? And Paul writes, Romans 13, he knows that governments are not always fair. He knows that they are not always good. He knows that they are not always going to uphold justice. They aren't going to at all times do all four of these things that we've just mentioned. No government has and no government the side of the kingdom coming will. Listen, when Paul's writing this in Romans 13, pagan Rome is ruling the world. And so he understands this. There would be no need in the New Testament to command us to be subject and to honor, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, the governing authorities, if we weren't tempted to do otherwise. And we're tempted to do otherwise because there's cause. But as we honor these governing authorities, we do so because we know that that honors God. Whether that's in the home with our husband or father or mother, or whether that's in the workplace with our employer, or whether that's in the church with our pastors and elders, or whether that's a city or state or national governments. Honor thy father and mother is more than about biology. It's about worship. Again, as we often have just too small a view of government, there's always a government behind the government, an authority behind the authority. God stands behind it. As Doriani said, if we obey government only when we like its decrees, we should call it agreeing, not submitting. Romans 13 matters, but Revelation 13 also matters. We cannot obey in all things. Again, there is an authority behind the authority. In Acts 5, when the high priest charges Peter and he is questioning Peter and he says to Peter, we charge you not to teach in the name of this man. And the name of this man that he's referring to is Jesus. And Peter responds and he says, we must obey God rather than men. He says that to the high priest. We must obey God rather than men. Romans 13 matters, but so does Revelation 13. And what happens in Revelation 13? Well, in Revelation 13, we see this beast emerge from the sea. And this beast has ten horns on his head which speak of power. And that beast has seven heads and has crowns on all of his heads signifying that he has authority. So here is this, this beast that represents government with all power and all authority that is emerging from the sea. And it is a government that is serving and seeking to serve Satan. 
And as that government goes out, it is enforcing and requiring that all the people under it serve it. And it will even go so far as to require that they worship it. We read that sad epitaph of that generation there in Revelation 13. I think probably the saddest epitaph in all of the Bible. It says this of that generation, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? We've seen this time and again throughout history, whether it is Pharaoh or whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or whether it is Nero or Hitler or Stalin. Therefore, we remember both Romans 13 and Revelation 13. Governments are to be submitted to, but they are not. We are, we are, we are only to go so far in our submission to them. So our fourth point, practice, what does all this actually mean for us? Well, it means submission, not surrender. I believe the Scriptures tell us that there are times where it is appropriate and it's possible for you and I to respond in civil disobedience in a God-honoring way. We submit, but we don't surrender. Now, having said that, not all Christians through the centuries have agreed with what I just asserted. There are some that I would label as position A. John Calvin would be one of them. That would say that because of Romans 13, no Christian should ever rebel against any governing authority, should never practice any civil disobedience against any governing authority, for any reason, because in Romans 13, God has instituted every government. And I just think that is wrong. To paraphrase Samuel Rutherford, no man comes out of the womb with a crown on his head or a scepter in his hand. No one is always to be obeyed regardless of their conduct. King Louis XIV once said, he said, I am the law. But that's not true. He's not the law because there's a government behind the government. There is no absolute power in the universe except for God. That's why we see civil disobedience in Scripture. We see it in the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, who feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. We see it in Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who feared God more than they feared Nebuchadnezzar. We see it with Daniel, who feared God more than he feared the Chaldean government. We see it with the Apostle Peter, who feared God more than he feared the high priest. Again, we want to say this with caution. When and how we practice civil disobedience should cause you and I to tremble with fear as Christians. And we should only exercise it when we believe the most extreme things that put in place that require it. As Paul says in Romans 13, the governing authority is his minister. And we never want to strike out against the Lord's anointed. But sometimes it is needed. John Knox and Samuel Rutherford argued a wife may rightfully resist her husband if he's trying to kill her. 
A servant resists a master who is abusing him. A passenger may push a, push a ship's captain aside who's trying to run the boat upon the rocks. And the citizens of a country may practice civil disobedience when the governing power is trying to destroy those it's meant to protect. I reject position A. There are other positions in the history of the church. I want, though, to say that Boiling them down to two, primarily, some people caught me after the service and proposed some others, and I said, yes, there, there are others. But primarily through church history, especially as we think about a republic or a democracy or a constitutional monarchy, these other two have been the other main two in what I would call position A, and um, position A was the first, the other two would be position B and position C. Position B would say that a government which promotes laws contrary to God's Word can be, disobey, can be disobeyed. A government which promotes laws out of accord with God's Word can be disobeyed. On the other hand, position C would argue that civil disobedience is only called for and a government can be disobeyed when it compels or commands us to do evil. You see the difference. Command, compel, in C and B would be promote. So position B would say that we are to disobey when freedoms are limited. Position C would say that we are to disobey only when freedoms are taken. Of course, there are degrees in these positions. I want to be candid with you here this afternoon now where I stand, I much more lean towards position C, though I think there are times and there are moments and there are circumstances that position B makes a lot of sense. I think it often boils down to wisdom. Let me see if I can flesh this out a little bit for you to put some flesh on the bones here. think we can safely say, I would hope we can safely say, that every Christian views abortion as murder. And that abortion is government-sanctioned murder. Position B would say that we have a right to practice civil disobedience to oppose abortion because it's against God's Word, and so there are laws that allow for it in this country, and so we should practice civil disobedience in light of that. So it may look like blowing up clinics that practice it, or it may be something that is less violent and more peaceful where you are breaking the law by chaining yourself to the doors of a clinic, or you are leading people to do a sit-in in a clinic. Because the law of the land allows for a violation of God's Word, and so you can practice civil disobedience, and you yourself can cross the law because you are against something that the government has instituted by law allowed for. Position C would say that no, we shouldn't ever break the law in that case. We shouldn't chain ourselves to an abortion clinic door or go in and do a sit-in, but we might protest outside peacefully in front of the abortion clinic. That is legal. And that would be called for because the government isn't actually mandating that you and I participate in this evil. 
But if they were requiring that every woman the age of 18 or younger who became pregnant had to have an abortion, or that all doctors had to participate in abortions, or that every person that became woman that became pregnant, you had to do a DNA test and see if that child had Down syndrome, and if they did, then the child would be, abor be aborted, then that's crossing the line. But because it's made allowable but not mandated, you probably wouldn't cross a law to protest it or to speak out against it. Submission, not surrender. Second, sympathy, not sameness. This gets complex very quickly, as you can see. We could give all kinds of addendums to that to make it incredibly complex. The church has faced these questions throughout its history. When is the right time for civil disobedience? How should it be practiced when we do do it? And if one thing proves itself throughout the history of the church, it is that there will be differing opinions among faithful believers when one is surrendering instead of submitting. And so we seek to understand one another. We seek to be sympathetic towards one another. And we do not demand sameness of opinion from one another. At times, we're going to differ. It's a matter of wisdom. Again, to put flesh on this, let me, at the risk of uh, some of you never listening to me again, uh, one man came up to me after the first service, and he was looking me up and down, and he said, I'm measuring you for, for tar and feathering, how much tar would be needed. But running that risk... If I had lived in 1776, well, let me say this first, you know, that when the Prime Minister of England heard about the rebellion of the American colonies, he was reported to have said, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. What he was referring to was John Witherspoon, and a Presbyterian pastor, the only pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence, who was an outspoken agitator for American independence. And that was true almost across the spectrum with Presbyterian pastors in the colonies at the time, arguing that the colonies should throw off the yoke of King George III and establish their own country. Again, at the risk of you never listening to me again, I think if I lived in 1776, I wouldn't have agreed. Thank, thank God that there was the Declaration of Independence. I thank God that the United States was established. I thank God that I'm an American. I'm a patriot through and through. But I don't think by my conscience that all things being equal from a spiritual standpoint... I would have agreed. King George III was abusive, but I don't think he crossed the line that moves us from Romans 13 to the warning of Revelation 13. The argument at the time was that lesser governing bodies, state assemblies, were protecting their citizens from the abuse of the greater governing body, the king who had wandered from the law. They viewed him as having become tyrannical, and so they had a right to protect the rights of their citizens that were under them. And that then gave cover for the citizens because they had a governing authority that was saying, we're rebelling. And 
You know, some of my great, great, would be my great, great, great grandfathers fought in the Revolutionary War on the Patriot side. And yet, all things being equal, I think I probably, by conscience, would have been a Tory. As much as that pains me to say, I would have stayed loyal to the crown. But the English Civil War, a hundred years before that, I would have been one of the first to sign up, I think, from a spiritual standpoint. Charles I was imposing Roman Catholicism upon his subjects. He had called forth a, a foreign army from Ireland to come and subject his subjects there in England. I think Cromwell and his followers, called Roundheads, had every right to engage in, in my, from my opinion, civil disobedience. May not have beheaded the king like they did, but I think they had every right to revolt. I would not have stayed loyal to the crown. A Roundhead Tory could ever be such a thing. Here's what I do know, is that there was disagreement across faithful Christian lines, both in 1776 and in the 1650s and 60s. You had faithful Christians that by conscience, some said we have to remain loyal to the king, and some that by conscience said we cannot remain loyal to this king. It was a matter of wisdom. That's fine. We're not always all going to agree. And it means that we need to be very careful in respecting one another's consciences in this. That we need to give the judgment of charity because it's not quite as black and white as we would like it to be in these matters. Sympathy, not sameness. Supplication, not slander. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, he says this, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Supplication, not slander. But you remember that those over you have been ordained by God to be over you, whether you like them or not. I fear... Slander marks the tongues of Christians more in this day than supplication for those that are over us. Do I pray more for those over me than I smear them? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O God, the psalmist says. That's a good prayer. Finally, and most importantly, service, not solution. Service, not solution. Government's important, but it's not all important. It has its sphere. As Christians, unlike the world which sees the government as the answer to everything, we know that we cannot secure by political means what only the Holy Spirit can accomplish by working grace in the hearts of His people. Government exists to serve, not solve. It exists to serve, not solve. 
C.S. Lewis, in his essay, Leaning, Learning in Wartime, said this. He said, the rescue of drowning men is then a duty worth dying for, but not worth living for. It seems to me that all political duties are of this kind. A man may have to die for our country, but no man must in any exclusive sense live for his country. Lewis is pointing out politics is worth dying for, but it's not worth living for. Not for us. Not for Christians. Now listen, be political. I want you to be political. Engage in politics. Engage in the political process. We live in democracy. Protest peacefully. Advocate differently. Run for office. Vote people out of office. Speak to issues as a Christian. In fact, I pray that as you come here that you are so steeped in gospel and kingdom things that when you go out into the world, you can't help but speak to the world. You can't help but impact the world. That you go out there and you bring truth to bear and you bring justice and mercy to bear. But government will never solve the greatest problems. It's like the physician who only treats symptoms. They can relieve a headache. They can put glasses on to help. And it's, it's a great help. It's good. But there's still a tumor there that's malignant. And the symptoms will come back or they'll multiply. The church is of the most help when it is evangelical rather than political. Christians active in this world, ministering by the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing truth before the watching world shapes this world like no secular government can or ever will. When the Word is preached and Christians are sharing the good news of Christ and we are ministers of mercy in the community, we are pointing others to the love of Christ. It's then that they are ushered into, that they are they're laid out before them the beauty of this kingdom, that when you enter into it, every ill is healed. Every tear is wiped away. Perfect justice is executed. Complete peace is experienced. It's not a kingdom, a government that passes. It's one that's forever. And they will only experience that justice, that mercy, that truth, that love, that grace. If the great physician does his work on them, and he takes that heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh. That malignant tumor is removed. That means that our hope is there. Listen, we are to labor in this world. 
We live in this world. Bring truth to bear. Bring justice and mercy to bear. But the great hope is eternal. Is that when Christ returns, this world, which I don't need to tell you, you can watch it on your nightly news every night, it is broken. And men and women and children fallen are in need of relief. They are in need of mercy. They are in need of help. Ultimately and everlastingly, that only comes through Christ. Which means that you and I are sharing Christ. And when Christ returns, when He does return upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels, there will be two things that immediately happen. Perfect justice will be executed. And every saint will be brought into everlasting peace immediately. He's worthy of hoping in. He's worthy of looking to. And so we'll keep looking to Him and laboring for Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that You reign over all. We're thankful that our Lord and Savior is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're thankful that He has sent us into the world to proclaim truth, to love our neighbors as ourselves as we seek to love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To bring truth to bear, to bring justice and mercy and love to bear. And we are thankful. Thankful that one day, even as we continually pray that Thy will on earth will be done here as it is in heaven, that Thy kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, that one day that will be true. And that there will be perfect justice, perfect peace, perfect truth, perfect love, reigning in the person of our Savior for all of eternity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.